Hello, and welcome to Entangled, the podcast where we explore the science of consciousness, the true nature of reality, and what it means to be a spiritual being having a human experience. I'm your host, Jordan Euclid, and today I'm joined by Dr. Martin Swetman. Martin is a professor at the University of Edinburgh at the School of Engineering, who has also published research on evidence for the Younger Dryas Impact Hypothesis and the sacred site Gobekli Tepe, which I consistently struggle to pronounce. In this conversation, we start by discussing why Gobekli Tepe is such an important archaeological discovery. We then discuss the synchronous timing between Gobekli Tepe's construction and the Younger Dryas period, and why the YD period was such an important epoch in our planet's history. Martin explains the evidence supporting the impact hypothesis, which suggests a cosmic impact contributed to the dramatic cooling off of our Earth during the YD period approximately 12,800 to 11,600 years ago. We then discuss how the Younger Dryas impact hypothesis relates to the broader debate of catastrophism versus gradualism. Then we discuss Gobleki Tepe's vulture stone, the torrid meteor stream, and the archaeoastronomical alignments at the site. Next, Martin and I discussed comet decay, the geological signals at impact sites across the globe, the lunar cycle, and the Earth of Man. We end the conversation considering what historical sites may still remain uncovered and what Gobekli Tepe could mean for the dating of the Sphinx. Outros for this and all episodes available at entangledpodcast.substack.com. Music from the show available on the Spotify playlist, Entangled the Vibes. Please enjoy! Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Entangled. I'm very honored today to be joined by Dr. Martin Swetman. Martin, how are you doing today? I'm fine, thank you. Yeah, nice to meet you. Fantastic. Well, Martin's on today to talk about uh, the Younger Dryest Impact Theory. But before we get into all that, would love to learn a little bit about your personal and professional background, Martin, and how you got interested in the Younger Dryest Impact. Uh, well, I'm a physicist, theoretical physicist by training, and uh, my research is mainly at the sort of interface between chemical physics, physical chemistry, and chemical engineering, although I teach chemical engineering, and uh, which isn't immediately um, uh, related to the Younger Dryas impact or Gobekli Tepe. Um, but uh, I, I guess I'm also, I, I, you know, I have research um, experience in material science, so it's, it's related somewhat to understanding um, the geochemistry at the Younger Dryas boundary. That's how I could contribute to that area. But I'm not an archaeologist or a paleontologist or anything like that or an anthropologist. But uh, I got interested in this through, uh, well, I've been interested in quite a while, uh, Gebeki Tepe, since it had been made public. And of course, all the symbols were very mysterious, trying to understand them. Uh, but it was really reading uh, Graham's book, uh, Magicians of the Gods, which I think has the key to. To unlocking um, the interpretation of Gobekli uh, Tepe, and that—that's how I really got into it. I'd been trying to understand it, uh, and that then sort of opened the door. From there, we found that uh, we could develop the interpretation of Gobekli Tepe much, much further. In fact, at the moment, I have another paper currently in peer review, which goes even further than than the work that's been published already. So. And it, and it agrees and, and supports with, with what we've already done. So it's it's very clear that I think that we've got this correct. 
Wow. So maybe uh, before we dive into that new paper in peer review, would love to just, uh, if you could give a little bit of background on what is Gobleki Tepe and some of the history of that discovery. Uh, well, Gobleki Tepe, um, it's, it's an ancient site. It's in South Turkey currently. Um, and it's so old that it dates right back to the time when um, people were just transitioning from a hunter-gatherer lifestyle to a, uh, a sort of settlement lifestyle. And Gebekli um, Tepe, it appears in the archaeological record even before we see clear evidence of agriculture. And previously it, it had been thought, this is the sort of archaeological paradigm, that, that agriculture was needed um, before larger settlements could could form, but Gebekli Tepe suggests that there was a stage before that uh, of sort of monumental construction. And so that then begs the question, well, what, what prompted this extraordinary monumental construction that uh, Gebekli Tepe represents? Um, say a bit more about it. It's, it's, a, it's a hilltop site. It consists of, well, the, the ground-penetrating radar suggests there are about um, 20 um, circular or roughly circular enclosures that are formed by these megalithic pillars. Uh, a bit like Stonehenge, but there are 20 of them or more on top of this hill in southern Turkey, and ex, um, archaeologists have, have so far excavated uh, about uh, four or five of these enclosures. <clears throat> Excavations are ongoing. And what they've revealed is, is these giant megalithic pillars covered in symbols uh, and these enclosures date to, well, the, the oldest enclosure, enclosure is dated to um, 9,600 BC, something like that. Wow. And so you mentioned that only four or five of the enclosures have been excavated. Are the remaining ones at a similar depth or are they, are they even lower? I don't know that we can tell that from the ground penetrating radar. So, yeah, we can't really answer that one. I, I would guess the, the ones that we currently see are already on bedrock. So I think probably that's where the other ones would be too. That makes sense. And so are there plans to excavate the rest of the enclosures? I don't know. Uh, there are excavations ongoing on different parts of the site. It's a very large site. So I don't know what the focus is at the moment for the excavators, because between and around the enclosures, there are lots of much the large sort of circular enclosures. There are lots of many more uh, sort of square house-like um, structures. And I, so I don't know exactly what the archaeologists are focusing on at the moment, the enclosures or these, these um, sort of more sort of house-like structures. I don't know. Sure. And you mentioned that, you know, the dating uh, correlates with the end of the last ice age. It'd be great if you could talk a little bit more about that younger driest period and, you know, what, what we currently believe happened during that time. Yeah. So the end, the, the last ice age, the, the Northern hemisphere is particularly is what we're talking about is started warming gradually. Uh, and then there was for a few thousand years, it, it got almost as warm as, the, as, as conditions are today, and then uh, temperatures plummeted back down to near ice age conditions for for over a thousand years. Uh, that period is the period we know as the Younger Dryas. Uh, so it dates from roughly, uh, let's say, uh, ten thousand eight hundred to 
about 9,600 BC. That's the Younger Dryas period. Things got very cold again in, in the Northern Hemisphere uh, before they are abruptly uh, warmed once again. And so the period from the end of the Younger Dryas is known as the Holocene period. And um, it's that period that's associated really with the development and origin of civilization. Got it. And so the dating with Gobleski Tepe would indicate it was um, after the end of the Younger Dryas at the beginning of the Holocene. Is that is that right? Well, yes. So the oldest date so far from Gobekli Tepe corresponds to um, the enclosure wall of the oldest enclosure that is currently excavated. And that date is around about 9,600 BC, roughly. And that date corresponds roughly to the end of the Younger Dryas period, the beginning of the Holocene. Um, but having said that, if, if you look at this enclosure, it's very well constructed. It's huge. Uh, it's extreme. It's well designed. This is clearly not uh, something that someone just got up and constructed one day on a whim. There must have been um, precursors. There must have been trial stages before this. So there, there would have been uh, this architecture would have been developing who knows for how long, maybe hundreds of years, perhaps thousands of years uh, before that. And we don't know where that would have taken place, whether those other structures would have been at Quebec and Tepe or at another site. Um, so yes, yeah, so all we can say at the moment is the earliest date of Quebec and Tepe corresponds to the end of the Younger Dryas period. But that style of construction must have been in development for a long time before that. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what I was touching on with my question earlier about, you know, what what's still uncovered or has not been uncovered rather. You know, is it possible that some of those enclosures date back even earlier than, you know, the earliest dates we've, we've found so far? Yeah, it's entirely possible that um, there are the the other 15 or 16 enclosures that we see on the radar. It's entirely possible that some of those are older. It's entirely possible that the pillars that are embedded into the walls of the enclosures that we have excavated are older than the enclosure itself. Uh, and we, we suspect that because it's known pretty well, it's known that the pillars have been moved. So they're not all in their original positions. Mm. There are various clues towards that. Uh, so if the pillars have been moved, then that also suggests that the pillars are older than the old, some of the pillars at least are older than the oldest enclosure. So again, it suggests that things started before the current date. There's also another, um, there's an enclosure just outside of the main excavation area known as enclosure E. Mm. And uh, it doesn't have any pillars, but it clearly it did have some because there are still some sockets carved into the ground <clears throat> so it clearly had um pillars at one point and the again it's it's fashioned from the bedrock so we can see this sort of um 20 meter wide roughly smoothed polished stone surface these sockets and it, it was an enclosure the fact that it doesn't have any pillars anymore suggests that some pillars perhaps were taken from it and used elsewhere so mm. we can't. It's difficult to date that, but it it could well be older than the the, uh, the ones that we currently we know about. So it, you know, there's a suggestion there that that might have been a precursor to some of the others. That's interesting. Um, and are there any credible theories as to why those pillars may have been moved? 
Well, I, I think that's you might kind of expect that in in the in a in a settlement because I think it is accepted to be a settlement now, not just a place where these monumental constructions were were built. I think that I think it's it's now for people who are living there. Um, so, you, you, you know, if, if you're living in a place for over a thousand years, Gebekli seems to have at least a lifetime of two thousand years. You're going to refashion, remodel, reconstruct parts of it. So it's not a surprise to see that some of the pillars will move. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and so that dating you mentioned that dates back to something like 9500 BC. Um, what what is the material substance that's used, and how do we date that? So that there's one radiocarbon uh, measurement from a small piece of charcoal, which was found in the mortar. To, of the enclosure wall. So that suggests that that is the date that that enclosure wall roughly was constructed. But as I say, because of the way that pillars appear to have been moved, it doesn't tell us necessarily about the date that the, the pillars were built or, or fashioned. Interesting. And and is it correct that we don't currently have a uh, a way to date stone, which is what makes you know dating these ancient sites partly so difficult? Yeah, exactly. I mean, there is, there is a less precise way of <clears throat> measuring some kinds of stone that have quartz crystals in them at their age, or at least the the time since they were last exposed to to light. Um, it's uh, some kind of photoluminescence measurement method. Um, it's not as accurate as radiocarbon, uh, and and it's not. Um, well, you, you have to have the right circumstances to be able to measure it. So you need the right kind of setting to make that uh, a useful measurement. So it's not quite true to say we can't measure the age of, of stone. But actually, even then, what you're talking about is the is the time since that stone was put in place. It's still not actually telling you when that, um, that pillar, for instance, was actually made. Yeah, that's a good point. Interesting. So going back to the Younger Dryas period, could you talk about why was that such an important period in the history of our planet, and what do you think could have caused it? Uh, well, it's very interesting, I think, largely because it's associated with the origin of settled life, uh, which I would say is the origin of civilization. I, I kind of equate the two things. So we see once this climate had improved after the end of the Younger Dryas, conditions in the Northern Hemisphere had improved, uh, there was more um, land available for agriculture. Uh, we see that this is when settlements really started to grow and people's way of life uh, changed. So that's, for archaeologists, that's the really interesting thing about it. From a geological perspective, we have this, this period of uh, about 1,200 years when climate abruptly changed and the onset the beginning of that period is there's been a lot of debate about why suddenly in the northern hemisphere um, climate dropped so rapidly. And uh, there is a prevailing theory, uh, which is very popular, which is that um, massive outflows of fresh water from the, from the northern uh, ice sheets as uh, well, for whatever reason, these these there are these massive outflows of, of fresh water into the northern oceans, and that would then prevent ocean circulation. That would tend to then cool 
the Northern Hemisphere. But understanding why these large outflows of water from the Northern Ice Sheets happen uh, is where the is where there's there are some question marks. You know, what triggers those process that process? Are they always entirely natural? Uh, these these large outflows, or can they be triggered by, for instance, uh, a cosmic impact or some other process? So there's a lot of debate about the the, the exact cause of this younger dry period. Interesting, but generally, I think it's but generally, I think it's accepted that these these massive outflows of fresh water from the from the ice sheets is uh is the sort of the, the main mechanism, but it's kind of what what triggers them is, is the issue. Yeah, and it, and it seems like the idea that it was a cosmic impact has been gaining steam amongst a lot of uh, scientists over the last call, you know, fifteen years. But that's that's maybe the main point of contention. Is that fair to say? Yes. Yeah. I mean, um, I mean, so there are lots of things happening at that point. So as well as this dramatic change in climate, there seem to be changes in, uh, particularly in the Americas. There's this thing called the end of Clovis which looks suspiciously close to that period, this uh, change in climate. And um, there's also, there's a whole bunch of um, extinction. So it's referred to as megafauna extinctions. Now across the the, the last 40 or 50,000 years of the last ice age, um, data suggests that there were extinctions across this period, but there seems to be a particularly dense cluster of extinctions right at the beginning of the Younger Dryas. Uh, so that's that's another sort of, uh, it's too much of a coincidence. You've got all these extinctions, you've got this climate change, you've got uh, changes in human population. Uh, and so then uh, scientists investigating what's known as the Younger Dryas Black Mert found that, uh, which, which in terms of radiocarbon age, which would be very close to this, the onset of the Younger Dryas, they found that there are lots of geochemical signals for a cosmic impact right at the base of that black mat in, in lots of different locations. So that's when, when that was published, that's when the Younger Dryas impact hypothesis took off. And I, I think it has been gaining uh, ground. Certainly, as I see it, the evidence is extremely strong. It's also had a lot of opposition from some Particularly uh, from some quarters, I wouldn't say uh, that um, I wouldn't say that the whole science community is against it, but that there are certain quarters, certain parts of the scientific community that don't like the idea, despite the the, you know, the incredible evidence that in, that's in favor of it. Yeah, and I think this debate really gets back to a, a larger discussion of the whole idea of catastrophism versus. Gradualism. So maybe you could talk a little bit more about the history of that scientific thought. Yeah, I mean, I, I find it in my because my, my background is not in geology; it's in, it's in physics and chemical engineering. I, I find it a bit perplexing as to why there is this great resistance to this idea. It seems like a perfectly natural idea to me. We see, and you know, astronomers now know that there are all these objects in space. If you look even further out into space, we see all these large icy bodies and we can predict their orbits and we can see that um, at some point, some of them will enter into a, an Earth-crossing uh, orbit. So we expect to see cosmic impacts like this. It's just a case of how often will they occur and there's some uncertainty about that. So it seems like a perfectly natural process and yet 
Um, I think if, if you've come through the education system, maybe from a more of an archaeological or geological perspective, there tends to be this resistance to the whole idea of cosmic impacts. So I suspect from, from an archaeological point of view, they want to see um, the the sort of motivate the sort of the mechanisms for everything to be found, you know, in the ground, you know, so to speak, you know, in terms of um, it's everything's to do with people's behavior and civilizations. Mm-hmm. So an astronomical explanation for what they what they observe at, at some of these sites is perhaps not what they um, perhaps less interesting to them. I don't know, but from a historical perspective, there has been for a long time a, a debate between catastrophism and what we might call gradualism. Um, you can take it back to the, the classical philosophers back in ancient uh, Greece. So Plato talked about faith on myth and even Atlantis. And uh, whereas Aristotle, a student, was talking about um, uh, you know the universe or the planetary bodies are carried on these uh, in, in uh, these impermeable spherical. Um, on these spheres that rotate around the earth at the earth center. So, uh, and, and these things never change. So you've got this, this, these different viewpoints and then you can come forward, you have the, um, the enlightenment and the scientific revolution. And again, there's debate about whether, uh, cosmic impacts could happen or, or whether, um, you know, how to explain abrupt changes in, or, or the, the observation of fossils in the ground and how they seem to occur at uh, different levels in the sediment and so on. So there's, there's been a long, for a long time, there's been a debate. And I think probably from about the 1800s, uh, some geologists, Hutton and Lyle, they kind of won out for a while their, their view that um, processes happen relatively slowly on Earth. And then Darwinism came along and, and also suggested that processes were, you know, evolution was relatively slow. And so we didn't need any kind of catastrophism. Um, but as I say, with, with changes, with the advances in astronomy, with, um, with, with you know, looking much more closely now at the fossil record, we can see that things have been pretty catastrophic in Earth's history. Um, so I think it's now, you know, catastrophism is now generally accepted. The difficulty now, I think, is with accepting that there is there is another kind of cosmic impact that doesn't necessarily form craters. So these are air bursts. They're much harder to to interpret. They're more difficult to detect because the signals they leave behind. You need much more advanced um, uh, scientific methods to detect them. So, and again, the rather than these impacts being caused by asteroids, which we can easily see, they tend to be caused by. Uh, let's say comets or comet fragments, and um, um, you know, astronomers have known about the the asteroid belt between Earth, sorry, uh, between Mars and Jupiter, uh, for a long time. But um, we're only, I think, um, getting an understanding of comets and their behaviour more recently. So it's all coming up. I think it is adding up to a, a much better picture now. But, but I think just for historical reasons, there's a lot of a lot of resistance to these new ideas. Yeah, it's interesting. And you know, it's it's one of your papers you talked about that kind of time period of the Enlightenment of the Copernicans and, you know, the their issues they had in getting people to accept heliocentricism. And it feels very much like we may be at a similar paradigm shift in our understanding of, of the history of geology and, and of the planet. Yeah. I, I uh 
I think so. I think there is, it, it does, it does require quite a big change. And I think opposition to these changes, not always based on the science. I think that quite often the voices that are opposed to this, uh, have other influences that are, that are not just scientific, you know, sort of, um, um, <clears throat> sort of political or religious opposition, but, um, yeah. uh, as a scientist, I just stick to the science. Yep. And you mentioned obviously Graham Hancock's work earlier and, you know, you, you were featured in his Netflix documentary series and he, he kind of touches on some of those dynamics a lot too. I'm, I'm curious, was that your first, uh, Netflix feature? <laughs> yes. First <laughs> Netflix. Uh, I do actually have another program out. Um, well, I say, I say I have, I, I feature in another, in another TV program. Um, so it's called Forbidden History. Okay. Uh, season seven, episode three, Secrets of Quebec and Tepe. Uh, and that focuses more on um, really Gebeka Tepe uh-huh. and the Younger Dryas impact and sort of my ideas. So it's uh, it's more focused, uh, and that's that's a really good program as well. It's not out; it's out it's out in America, I think, in the US on Discovery Science Channel, but it's not out awesome. Here in the I'll have to check that out. Yeah, and you were, uh, I believe, also at Gebeka Tepe with Graham on Ancient Apocalypse, and, and in particular, I think you guys were talking about the uh, the vulture stone. So, we'd love to hear a little bit more about you know why that's such an important part of the structure. So, at Gebeka Tepe, there is one of these enclosures called Enclosure D, um, <clears throat> and the vulture stone is one of the pillars. Well, they call it Pillar Forty Three. Uh, the archaeologists. Uh, so it's one of the pillars there. It's probably the most intricately carved of all the pillars. And um, lots of symbols to interpret. And so uh, we, we previously published a paper back in 2017, this is with a, a colleague, uh, where we interpreted those the symbols on the pillar as giving a date. Um, so essentially a date stamp using um, procession of the equinoxes. Now, supposedly, procession was first discovered by Hipparchus in the 2nd century BC. Uh, so this is you know, nine, 10,000 years before that. It seems that procession was known and used to represent dates. Uh, so that's a bit controversial. And what is procession of the equinox? Uh, so, if, um, so, so the Earth obviously rotates on its axis, and that axis points to a point in the sky, we kind of associate that with a pole star. But over 26,000 years, this, this axis precesses. So the Earth's rotational axis points at a different point in the sky. And that, that draws out a circle over 26,000 years. And the consequence of that is that if you look on the summer solstice, if you try to estimate which constellation is behind the sun on the summer solstice, that also changes over 26,000 years. So it'll go through an entire cycle of the zodiac in 26,000 years. So you can, so if you use, so if you, if you draw a picture of the sun on the summer solstice relative to the constellations around it, you can use that as a way to write a date with a period of 20, roughly 26,000 years. On the other hand, if you just say, well, the sun is nearest to this particular constellation on the, on the summer solstice, you could also write a date but with less accuracy because you're just saying, well, it's near that constellation rather than saying exactly its, its position relative to it. But then you can use the other constellations on the uh, equinoxes and the winter solstice to, get, to refine your date. So there are different ways of doing this, and we can see that people have used different ways 
we think, uh, to write these dates. Now, on the Volchester, on Pillar 43 at Quebec Tepe, they've actually used the sun in, in relative position to what appears to be a constellation similar to Sagittarius. So they've used this directly, the, the position of the sun relative to a constellation to write this date. And that date, if you take this particular symbol, this, this sort of eagle or vulture symbol to represent the, what we call the teapot asterism, which is essentially the bow of Sagittarius. If you take that as, as what it's representing, then the date we get from that is, is very close to the Younger Dryas impact. So it seems to us, or we, so we can interpret this pillar as being a memorial to the Younger Dryas impact. At the bottom of the pillar as well, there is a little headless man, perhaps indicating death. And of course, you've got to explain why did anyone build such a, uh, an amazing construction at this time? They were hunter-gatherers rather than gradually um, sort of developing their architecture. In the, instead, what's happened is they have these amazing monuments, which are completely unexpected. Uh, and then you have to ask, well, why did they do that at that time? There has to be a strong motivation. And I think the Younger Dryas impact gives you the sort of the, the required motivation to, to build these amazing structures. Essentially, what I'm saying is, that possibly the impact inspired a religion or a new religion. And it's this religion that um, then motivated the building of these, these monuments. Interesting. So also like as a way to kind of memorialize the, the beginning of that religion or era or whatever it, it reflected. Yeah. So we think it could be um, memorializing the event and, and after a while, this event, this event inspired a religion huh. and you know, then you, you start building your cathedral, whatever it is you know, for this this religion. There's also another pillar, pillar 33, which shows some some of the same animal symbols, which we think are constellations. And projecting out of these animal symbols are snakes, and, and then so if you think of these animal symbols as being constellations, then the snakes are a really nice picture of, of probably meteors, and we can even work out which meteor stream this might be. Because we can, we think we can recognise which constellations these animal symbols cor correspond to, and it appears that this meteor stream is that it's represented on this pillar is the Taurid meteor stream because of the constellations it's radiating from, and the Taurid meteor stream is the same meteor stream that's been implicated in the Younger Dryas impact. So we've got in a separate corroborating <clears throat> evidence. Now, in this, this latest paper I mentioned. Well, a manuscript that we um, that is currently in peer review. Um, we have in, an interpretation for some other symbols on these pillars. These are V symbols. <clears throat> Excuse me. And what we can see is that on pillar forty three, there appears to be an entire lunar solar calendar encoded in V symbols. And so you can kind of count the number of V symbols. And what you find is that you have 364 of them, or you can, you can, you can find a way to make 364 of them. You're missing one, but there is one more V symbol on the neck of this eagle of ultra, which we think represents the summer solstice. So that would agree, uh, you know, this is another day, <clears throat> 365 for the lunar solar calendar. And again, as you look at pillar 33, uh, we predicted that Pillar 33 represented a meteor stream, the Torrid meteor stream, which would have radiated for several weeks from these different constellations. On that pillar, we see these V symbols, 
and there are you count them 13 of them from radiate uh, 13 of them um, indicating radiation from one constellation and 14 from another so in other words for about a period of a month um it appears that they were observing the meteor stream so it all ties together now we have an interpretation for these these abstract these symbols as well as the animal symbols that all of yeah. them basically mutually supports each other interesting and could you talk through where is the torrid meteor stream and um how do we today interact with it well today we observe it from the direction it goes from uh, pisces through aries to taurus which is why it's called the torrid meteor stream and uh so that so that, that's the sort of the radiant position position in the sky that the, the meteor stream appears to radiate from yeah and it goes goes through those constellations and that takes six to eight weeks i think currently now because of precession of the meteor stream not earth i'm talking now because of precession of the meteor stream uh twelve thousand years ago it would have moved along the zodiac by two constellations so back mm. in it would have radiated from the position <clears throat> let's get this right of uh well initially capricornus and then aquarius and then pisces mm. uh, and that's what we see on some of these pillars that um the, the pillar that i mentioned with the snakes it seems to be representing aquarius and pisces which, mm. so that's how we associate it with the uh, torrid meteor stream so it's it's due to precession of the longitudinal precession of the torrid meteor stream that, that things have changed interesting and so is the idea that um one of these big meteors from this stream would have hit at the beginning of the impact uh, sorry the in at the beginning of the younger dryas period or or are we not that refined yet that's the that's the idea i mean uh-huh we know that the Torrid meteor stream would have been much more active, let's say, ten or twenty thousand years ago. It's a very big meteor stream. It's mostly decayed. It's a very old meteor stream, I should say. Uh, so it would have been much more intense uh, back then. So it's like the main culprit. Um, but actually, saying we prove it, we, we, we can't prove it, of course. Yeah. However, the, at Quebec Tepe, we seem to have a witness statement, if you like, which says. It was the torrid meteor stream that did it uh, that's how we interpret um those symbols anyway yeah and so then what do we think it is that caused the end of the younger dryas period no water pulse one b uh so the, the end period i think is also that's a good question i think um that would have been a reversal of the the cause of the younger dryas i guess um so, I mean, these things aren't, aren't well known. So you have what what started the Younger Dryas period. Uh, you know, the main hypothesis is that it was these massive outflows of fresh water, melting of the ice sheets, that would have um, caused some kind of disruption to the ocean circulation currents, these massive ocean, ocean circulation currents that transport heat all around the planet. So then if, you, if you're saying, well, what ended the Younger Dryas, probably it's a resumption of those massive ocean circulation currents. So the, the salt-free water that was blocking the, um, 
the Atlantic current presumably had dispersed, had warmed up, uh, and so that Atlantic current was free to begin again, and therefore mm. you, you, you kind of restart, or, uh, you kind of reset your ocean circulation currents, and so then things warm up again in the North Atlantic. And you know, obviously Graham's thesis is that there was an advanced civilization prior to this period. And um, that seems to possibly be one of the reasons why some in the scientific community have resisted the younger, the younger driest impact hypothesis is that maybe if they accept it, then it, it lets, lends more credibility to the idea that there was a high civilization, you know, before this happened, potentially Atlantis. What do you think about all that? Well, <laughs> I personally don't see a need. I don't see any strong evidence for a a civilization before the Younger Dryas event. Um, I'm pretty sure there couldn't have been an advanced civilization. It depends what you mean by advanced and civilization, uh, because if, if there was such a thing, it would it would show up quite easily in the archaeological record. And I don't think we see that. I think it's possible, and there could have been maybe a sort of fledgling Stone Age civilization, by which I mean people settling down into communities, building towns, uh, but still Stone Age, still very limited. Uh, and it's possible that such a civilization could have been destroyed or submerged under under the meltwaters. Um, but again, I, yeah, I, that speculation, I don't think we see any evidence for that yet. But for an advanced civilization, I don't see that as being. Well, I think that's very difficult because I think I think if such a thing had existed, evidence would be obvious, and we just don't see it. Interesting. So you think like there would have been more material evidence or, or the like left over? Yeah, um, material evidence definitely. Yeah, I mean, you you would see the material evidence wouldn't just be confined to those areas that are now submerged. You would see it much in much more widely dispersed. But also, I think particularly genetic evidence. Um, if if there was, let's say there was, if there, if there was an advanced civilization, I think they would be trading, they would be colonizing, they would be moving around the, the the earth, and so we'd see plants and animals and people, their genetic remains, their profiles crop up in unexpected places, and again, we, we don't see that. So I think if there was anything at all, any kind of civilization at all, they would they'd still need to be quite limited. Probably Stone Age, not a trading civilization, perhaps, perhaps an exploring civilization. Yeah. And again, this is speculation. I just, you know, yeah. I personally don't know of any evidence really or any strong evidence to suggest such a civilization existed. But I think it's it's within the realms of possibility that a, yeah. a fledgling a fledgling civilization could have existed before the Andromeda. And just to push back on the genetic markers piece, I, I believe that Graham's last book he highlights some. Uh, similarities between aborigines in Australia and natives in the uh, Amazonian rainforest that were, were pretty anomalous. Uh, yeah, to be honest, I'm not an expert on, on Graham's books. I can't really... Sure. <laughs> no problem. Yep, yep. No, that makes sense. And it's interesting to me, too, that, you know, there's the resistance to the Younger Dryas impact when, you know, it seems like um, the whole idea of the dinosaurs and their extinction by, by comet impact was... Uh, similarly rejected until we find the crater impact so it's just it's interesting to me that there's still this resistance to the idea of cosmic impacts causing massive you know global change yes yeah there is now as i say i think 
possibly historical reasons for that, the way that the geological sciences have developed through the centuries. <clears throat> so this gradualist or uniformitarian principle was it's very strong. And, uh, you know, I think we've only really become aware of what's out there in space over the last few decades. So, um, and I think, as I said before, I think there's just a reluctance to accept that things outside of the earth are responsible for some of the changes that, that mm. we see, um, especially if they don't leave craters. This is, this is the new thing you see. If you don't have a crater, then how can you know there was an impact? I think people, I think scientists have got used to the idea of crater forming impacts, um, but non crater forming impacts, I think uh, they're much harder to identify. But we know they have. I mean, obviously, that we see things in space that will um, generate these kind of impacts. So we know they must happen. We know about the Tunguska impact. Um, there have been other reported um, sort of uh, air bursts as well in history. So we know these things happen. It's just, well, how often do they happen? And, and particularly, I think there is an issue with um, the, the current estimates for the rate of impacts are based largely on what we currently see in the sky. Mm. And there is an assumption that things don't change, that what we see in the sky now is kind of what's always been in the sky. Mm. But if you factor in this new, actually new, this more recent mechanism that comets from the outer reaches of the solar system can find their way into the inner solar system and decay. Well, that process only takes a few thousand years. So you have to factor in, well, the sky could change, say the sky, what's out there in space in, in near Earth orbit, that could change dramatically on, on, on the order of a few thousand years. So any estimate we have right now, based on what we see right now, um, well, that, that could on, on the one hand, that could change completely within a few thousand years, but also it's not a reliable way of predicting what the sky looked like, let's say, 20,000 years ago. Yeah. Uh, particularly because we're talking about comets, and comets decay when they get into the inner solar system. All they leave behind, um, well, they leave behind meteor streams. So that's one way that we know that uh, these, these comets have decayed in the inner solar system. They, they, they leave behind meteor streams. Now they also want, and those meteor streams will gradually decay to smaller and smaller pieces, eventually to dust. And so we see the zodiacal dust cloud, which is this like sort of um, diffuse dust uh, that, that permeates the sort of the, the plane of the solar system, the, or the inner part of the solar system. Uh, and so if, if we look at how much dust there is in the inner solar system, Again, that indicates that there was very likely a giant comet that, that, that entered the inner solar system maybe 20,000, 30,000 years ago and has since decayed. So there are some good clues uh, for this scenario. Um, but again, they, they seem to be, you know, despite the evidence, they seem to be resisted or they seem to be controversial. But I find the evidence to be very convincing. Yeah, and I think all the evidence you put together in your paper, you know, uh, compiling it all was was super compelling. And you talk about obviously not having the crater impact, but I think one of the things that's so compelling is how there have been all these different sites that have appeared across four different continents. Maybe you can talk about you know what what that um, uh, what that correlation and timing really does to support the evidence. Yeah, so this there's been a lot of work, though dozens dozens of papers by 
uh, you know, very detailed studies of um, sites around the world. Well, I say on four continents at least. So these are studies uh, of the geochemical signals of cosmic impact, and and they they seem to occur what's known as the Younger Dryas boundaries. This is when the event is, is thought to have happened. At the base of what is known, well, often at the base of what is known as the Younger Dryas Black Net. So this is like a, a layer of discolored sediment, which occurs, uh, well, it seems to occur now across many continents. Uh, and so um, sometimes this Younger Dryas Black Net is enriched in charcoal, and you can say, oh, look, there looks to have been some Know, massive wildfires. Uh, other times, this black mat is just indicating a change in climate. But at the base of this discolored sediment, sediment, there is this quite often a thin layer of charcoal or soot, uh, and, that, and that is sort of mixed with these geochemical signals for impact. So we're talking about nano diamonds, impact microspherals, um, melt glass, and um, platinum group metals, particularly platinum. And this is found, you know, if, if you see these indicators of a cosmic impact widely dispersed across, let's say, at the moment, about half the Earth's surface, with uh, radiocarbon dating all roughly to about the same time, you know, within the uncertainty of, of the measurements, then it's natural to say, well, there was this giant event that, that occurred. You know, you, you, what other explanation is there? And uh, so that, that that's why I think this is you know, basically confirmed in it. There is so much evidence. In fact, um, there's another paper, a review paper by uh, James Powell, and uh, with the title uh, which begins "Premature Rejection of the Younger Dryas Impact Hypothesis." So in his paper, uh, he has a nice table of, I think there are something like 56 different sites now where they have, I can just got it here. So he has a nice table. There are, um, it's got about, yeah. So he's got a list of all the different, of what well, of the main impact indicators at these 56 different sites. And so we find the black mat at 30 of them, impact spherules at 34 of them, melt glass at 10 of them, nano diamonds at 26 of them, post um sorry, platinum group elements, at 38 of them, and fire marks, so that's charcoal, so at 39 of them. So, yeah, <laughs> 56 sites across four continents, you have all of these impact markers. Um, it, it's really convincing. Yeah, and I'll make sure to add a link to that paper in the show notes. Um, Good place. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you mentioned, you know, um, uh, the nano diamonds and microspherules and, and all that. Are those... Uh, are those indicators of something that, you know, does not typically happen on Earth without a cosmic impact? Some of them are not completely diagnostic of a cosmic impact. So let's say um, <clears throat> it is possible uh, volcanism, so volcanoes can release um, platinum group metals in, in greater abundance than you normally find in Earth's crust. And that's because the interior of the Earth is richer in, in platinum group metals than the Earth's crust. So Volcanoes can release those metals, but uh, in that case, you can also expect to find enrichment in sulf sulfates, and you'd expect to find uh, volcanic tephra, and we don't find these at all. So it's it's the it's the platinum group metals in the absence of other indicators of volcanism 
plus other indicators of a cosmic impact, like um, melt glass, for instance. Uh, studies at some sites have shown that melt glass could only have formed above 2,000 degrees Celsius. And uh, uh, volcanoes don't produce such high, volcanism doesn't produce such high temperatures. So again, that rules out volcanism. Um, Nano diamonds, not thought to be generated by uh, volcanism, but they are known to be carried by meteorites and they're known to be generated by high energy explosions involving a carbon substrate. So nano diamonds points to cosmic impact as well. And the impact spherules, um, or at least the, the micro spherules, we think that the, the forces that there's are impact micro spherules in part is because many of them are enriched in metals, so iron and, and other metals. And again, you wouldn't expect that from volcanism. So there, there are, you know, if you look at it sort of diagnostically, which is what the researchers have done very carefully, they have diagnosed essentially a cosmic impact through these different, through the evidence. Wow. That's wild. It's really, uh, really exciting stuff. So I'm curious, you mentioned, you know, you've got a paper right now in peer review. You know, where, uh, where do your interests take you next? Are you still focusing on Goblecki Tepe or any, any, uh, any other areas of interest these days? Yeah. So my main focus really has, has always been Gebekli Tepe. Um, and of course, because our interpretation about that is, is related to the Elder Dryas impact, I then have a very strong interest in understanding the Elder Dryas impact. So that's how that, that's what led me to, uh, to, the, to write that review paper. But as I said, we have a, a manuscript. Uh, so this was, I say me, <laughs> I was contacted, um, by, um, by a guy. Uh, John Gordon is his name, out of the blue. And, and so it was really his insight. He he had been looking at Pillar 43 back in Tepe, and he had noticed that these V symbols seemed to be indicating some kind of lunar cycle. And so from that initial insight, then went on to develop this this whole interpretation of the V symbols at Quebec Tepe and the other sites that we see. Um, there are V symbols also on the Earth for man, so the Earth, Earth of Man is um, it's a very well-known statue in that area that, that dates to around the time of Quebec Tepe. It's the first uh, sort of large uh, human-sized statue ever made. And again, uh, he has a double V on, on his neck. And uh, previously, the explanation for this double V was that, well, it looks like an item of clothing, perhaps, you know, like a V-neck jumper. But... Uh, yeah. But we see these V symbols elsewhere and we can interpret them as indicating days. So we interpret the V at the neck as indicating, well, this is a deity with some kind of control over time or creation, a creation deity. And that I think fit very well with this whole notion of a, this being a, a, you know, a religious icon. Essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And that would be logical, right? If, you know, this, there was this massive comic impact, obviously then. Yeah. It disrupted their, you know, been, been a meaningful moment in their society. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, with religion, you know, prominent religions, you expect deities, icons of the deities to, to exist, yeah. created deities, time-controlling deities. And uh, the other a very interesting thing as well in, the, in this paper is that we, we try to make some links between the symbolism we see at Kipatitepe and the symbolism <clears throat> that we see much later in the Bronze Age in that region or in Mesopotamia, Egypt and, and beyond. And there do seem now to be very clear links. There does seem to be a continuity of symbolism 
from the time of Gebekli Tepe through to to the Bronze Age. Um, so we're starting to see really strong connections now, symbolically. Wow. And um, am I correct that there's other sites near uh, Gobleki Tepe, like Karahan Tepe, and that it's actually even a, a larger, potentially multi-site structure? Or, or how should we think about the relationship between those? That's right. So in the last year or so, the Gobleki Tepe has been put into a sort of better context. So archaeologists in that, in that area have uncovered about 12 other sites. Wow. Karahan Tepe is the most well-known, and it's the most similar so far to Quebec Tepe in that it has similar style T-pillars, these pillars that we're talking about, and it has similar kind of carvings on them. In our latest manuscript, we suggest they were using the same lunar solar calendar as well because, uh, okay, this is getting into details now, but for a lunar solar calendar, 11 turns out to be a special number. 11 is the number of days after you've counted all of your solar, uh, all of your lunar cycles. 11 is the number of days left that you need to complete a solar year. Mm. Uh, 11 plus 1 is also the number of lunar cycles. So 11 is kind of like a special number for a lunar solar calendar system. And it turns out the two biggest enclosures at Quebec Tepe have 11 pillars. And there is a special structure at Kakaraham Tepe which has 11 pillars. So it seems that they were using the same calendar system interesting it, it see, so it seems like the calendar was obviously very important for them i mean what, what why why could that have been such an important thing to memorialize well i mean if you if you think about life try to think about life back then it would have been so dominated by the seasons everything yeah. all of your resources is dominated by the seasons uh it's going to influence how you manage your life, you know, having a family, uh, how you forage for food. Everything is dominated by the seasons. And the seasons can be tracked, they can be marked, they can be followed by following, uh, well, primarily the sun and the equinoxes. Uh, but tied into that, you're either counting days, you've got the moon, which has a regular cycle. So, it, it, for me, it's kind of obvious that ancient people would have been really interested in in astronomy, the moon and the sun, the equinoxes, but also the, the stars, you know, because you know, we have so many things to entertain us, we hardly notice the sky. Uh, you know, I think, I think in, his, in his Netflix program, Graham gets the spot on, you know, people were much more interested in the sky back in ancient times. We see many cultures ancient cultures that we know were interested in astronomy. They built their religions around astronomy, except Mesopotamians, the Egyptians. Yeah. So we know it was a key influence. Uh, and if you just take that back further, people must still have been interested. You know, their lives had been dominated by the seasons and therefore astronomy. So it all makes, I think, sense. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. And it's you bring up the whole light pollution issue. I mean, it's it's fascinating. Even just going camping, like, to try and get away from it, to see where you can really get a clear view of the stars is almost impossible these days, at least in, in the West. Yeah, wow. but when you do, it's fantastic, isn't it? Yeah. When you get a really, really good, when you get a really clear view of the sky, and you have to travel a long way to nowhere into the wilderness to get to such a place. You know, then you really see the sky, and it's just fantastic. Yeah, yeah. 
And, you know, I think one of the really interesting things about Gobleki, I mean, there's so much that's so interesting about it, but one of the other things is that it appears to have been intentionally buried at a certain point. I'm curious, do you have any theories about when and why that would have been? Yeah, so this this was something that was suggested originally by, let's say, excavators maybe 10 years ago that the site was intentionally buried. I think the view on that has changed. Mm. Uh, more recent excavations suggest that this, at least a lot of the filling may have just happened naturally because the suggestion is at least you have these enclosures, these sort of ceremonial spaces that people were frequenting and keeping keeping well ordered. But around that, you've got life going on. You've got people building houses and they would just rebuild houses on top of each other every every few generations. Let's say that you get a new house, you build it on top of the other one. You have these houses piling on top of each other, and after a while, they they completely overlook and overcrowd the enclosures that they're built around. Mm. And then there's a suggestion that at some point, maybe an earthquake, perhaps bad weather, the things just collapse in and just sort of bury uh, these enclosures. So. I don't think the idea now is that these were deliberately buried, or at least initially there may have been some basically landslide. Uh, but once these things had become partially filled, maybe then there was an attempt to, to give them a, a, a more decent burial, if you like. So it may be in a combination. Yeah. Uh, because it, it, if you look at other archaeological sites, it's, it seems to be a well, uh, it's, it's a well understood practice that houses seem to have a lifetime that they houses that people lived in they lived for a few generations and then when it was time for a new house they built directly on the previous one and they kind of almost like buried the previous house as though it was a person wow <laughs> that's wild and you know it's it's interesting talking about how much is still buried i just got back from a trip to egypt where you know our guides were telling us about just they know there's just so much that's still still to be excavated, probably vast more than has been um, uncovered. So I'm curious, are there any other sites around the world that you find particularly interesting or any areas you think archaeologists should be looking that we're maybe not looking today? Well, yes, I suppose. Um, <laughs> Gebethi Tepe through to the Bronze Age, we're seeing this this symbolism. So presumably this symbolism must have existed continuously across that period. Uh, and so we, we should expect to find evidence for this symbolism in the intervening settlements. Uh, so I'm wondering, you know, I think it would be good, to be interesting to try and find evidence for this symbolism uh, sort of continuously across this period. So that would involve further excavations, uh, studies in the region of Mesopotamia, in uh, Iran, Chitran, uh, and also Egypt, trying to link the symbolism in this very long period between Gubekli Tepe and, and the Bronze Age. That's, that's one interesting area, I think. Um, I think Graham is probably right. There are There's bound to be some interesting sites, I think, that are currently underwater. We know almost well. We know nothing about so. There's there's a there's a lot of a lot to be discovered. I think under on the sort of the coastal margins. Yep, that makes total sense. 
Interesting. And when you talk about the symbolism, are you talking specifically about um, looking for calendars or other types of like archaeastronomical alignments that date to the specific date or, or other symbols as well? Yes. So well, I guess all of the above, um, uh-huh. any kind of archaeoastronomical uh, <laughs> uh, symbolism. So uh, Zodiac particularly, uh, you know, did, uh, is there a, a continuation in these animal symbols? Um, I don't think that's been very well studied because I think the assumption is, well, they're just animal symbols, they're pictures of animals. Um, and, and so why would there be any pattern to them? But I think if, if you then think, well, maybe some of them are, but maybe there are they're sort of the ones that are have like a religious context. Perhaps those are zodiac symbols. Uh, and then, is there any way to? Or how can we understand symbolism or notation for a calendar system? That's not obvious either, because you're looking at markers. You have to then sort of count marks if you like mm. and so you have to then kind of be able to recognize well that's a because people would not have used the same calendar system that we're using today obviously they have, they have their own calendar systems it seems that they're way back at but technically they had a lunar solar one so does that continue yeah and again i think the assumption has been that this just wouldn't have existed and therefore it's not been looked for mm. um, so we know uh for stonehenge for example Again, megalithic monument, it has very clear uh, alignments towards the solstices. Uh, there's been a paper published recently which suggests it too, its pillars were also a calendar system. Hmm. But this seems to be a pattern that many of these megalithic circles seem to be related to calendar systems. We see the same thing in the northeast of Scotland. There are these... Uh, they're called, they're called recumbent stone circles, but again, they seem to be calendar systems. Interesting. And are they similar lunisolar calendar systems that have that 11 that you're talking about, or is that unique to Gobleki Tepe? So, well, okay, Stonehenge doesn't seem to be of that type exactly. So Stonehenge seems to be using uh, an early Egyptian type of calendar, mm. which is where you have uh, 12 months of 30 days exactly. And so therefore, rather than 11, you only need five days to complete uh, a solar year. And so then there are, at Stonehenge, there are these five pillars in the in sort of the inner circle of Stonehenge. And so that's how you, you have 30, it seems, around the outside, and then yeah. five in, in the middle. So that uh, it's a different kind of calendar. It's, it's a solar calendar, but I wouldn't call it a lunar solar calendar because it doesn't respect the lunar cycle uh, closely. Yeah. The... the, the the stone circles in the northeast of Scotland, they typically have 11 or 12 pillars. So again, they might have been using a mix uh, of, of calendar systems. But the problem with, with those stone circles is they're often not very complete. Uh, so and there's relatively few that look to be uh, in good condition. And do you think that's just due to you know the weathering of the ages and people throughout time kind of just tearing it apart and all that? Yeah. Farmers, people looking for construction materials and so on. Gotcha. Yep. Interesting. Which I think, again, is why Gobleki Tepe is so unique because it's so massive and in such pristine condition. Yeah, because it was hidden. It was buried. Um, it's it's remained intact, uh, which is brilliant. <laughs> Absolutely brilliant for us. Yeah. But as you say, um, like, 
other sides that don't, haven't fared so well. But it, it does make you wonder, you know, if you go back to the time before Quebec tapping was discovered, it would not have been thought that such a site existed mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or was even possible, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, so it, well, it was a, bit, you know, a complete revelation when it was discovered. Yeah. And it's, so you think that makes you think what else could be out there? Totally, totally. Well, and I think it also, to your point, right, lends a lot of credence to uh, John Anthony West and Robert Schock's proposal that the Sphinx may be older than we believe because of the water okay. weather dating. So I'm curious if, if you have any thoughts on what this means for the Sphinx. Yeah, I mean, in, in my book, I speculated that the Sphinx might be another one of these zodiacal symbols related. Well, in my book, I, I thought it might be related to cancer rather than Leo. Um, but that was that was quite speculative. And the, the, the dating of the Sphinx, the sort of scientific evidence the dating of the sphinx is is very uncertain so it, it's hard to pin it down um now there was a paper recently which was talking about the rev the, the, the level of the river nile and it placed a limitation on the age of the sphinx based on uh, it, it couldn't be that old because the, the level of the river nile would have um would have washed over the sphinx had it been there and, and would erode, eroded it away completely so it had to sort of post-date the point when the, the Nile went down again. Uh, I haven't actually studied that paper very well, so I, I need to uh, check out the details. But that would be a strong case against uh, a much older speaks. Interesting. Yeah, I have to check that out. Wow. Well, really exciting stuff, Dr. Subman. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Uh, you know, if listeners want to learn more about you and your research, is there a good website or, or something we can point them to? My book. Uh, prehistory decoded uh, that summarizes uh, the research up until a few years ago, 2019. My blog, uh, com, has my sort of more recent ideas, including manuscripts for any papers that I've submitted recently. Uh, yeah, so, so check out my book and my blog, I would suggest. Fantastic. Awesome. Well, thanks again for uh, joining the show and I uh, really appreciate the conversation. I hope you have a great rest of the day. Thank you, Jordan. Nice speaking to you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you all for listening and I hope you enjoyed the episode. In this episode, we discussed the Younger Dryas YD period and the evidence supporting the impact hypothesis. Here is the abstract of Dr. Swetman's 2021 Earth Science Review article reviewing the impact evidence. In, t- in 2007, a team, of sci- a team of scientists, Firestone et al., proposed that a major cosmic impact, circa 10,835 calendar BCE, triggered the Younger Dryas YD climate shift, along with changes in human cultures and megafaunal extinctions. Fourteen years after this initial work, the overwhelming consensus of research undertaken by many independent groups reviewed here suggests their claims of a major cosmic impact at this time should be accepted. Evidence is mainly in the form of geochemical signals at what is known as the YD boundary, found across at least four continents, especially North America and Greenland, such as excess platinum, quench-melted materials, and nanodiamonds. Their other claims are not yet confirmed, but the scale of the event, including extensive wildfires and its very close timing with the onset of dramatic YD cooling, suggests they are plausible and should be researched further. 
Notably, arguments by a small cohort of researchers against their claims of a major impact are, in general, poorly constructed and under close scrutiny, most of their evidence can actually be interpreted as supporting the impact hypothesis. That 2007 Firestone et al. hypothesis proposed that one or more large, low-density ET objects exploded over northern North America, partially destabilizing the Laurentide ice sheet and triggering wired and triggering YD cooling. The shockwave, thermopulse, and event-related environmental effects, e.g. extensive biomass burning and food limitations, contributed to end Pleistocene megafaunal extinctions and adaptive shifts among Paleo-Americans in North America. Earlier this year, J.L. Powell published another paper highlighting the YD impact evidence and arguing that it had been prematurely rejected. On Substack, I've included Table 4 from Powell's paper, which shows the various impact markers at 56 Younger Dryas boundary sites across five continents. Powell, Powell highlighted the following impact markers. Black mat at 30 sites. Black mat refers to the stratigraphic marker covering the Clovis Age landscape of North America during the YD period. No Clovis sites are found above the black mat layer, and many extinct megafaunal species are found below the black mat, but not within or above. Impact spherules at 34 sites. Microspherules can be created by cosmic impacts, air bursts, and the non-catastrophic atmospheric burnup of small meteorites. Melt glass at 10 sites. Melted, min melted minerals above 1,500 degrees Celsius strongly indicates production by a cosmic impact, especially in the absence of lightning and volcanism. Nanodiamonds at 26 sites. Nanodiamonds are nanometer to submicron-sized carbon crystals that are known to occur within meteorites and cosmic impact structures. PGEs at 38 sites. PGEs refer to platinum group elements like platinum, iridium, and osmium, which are much more abundant in meteorites than terrestrial upper crust rocks. And fire markers at 39 sites. Intense thermal radiation would be expected to ignite wildfires on the ground following a cosmic impact. Powell further highlights six major events that all occurred at or soon after the onset of the YD, approximately 12,850 years ago. 1. The Great Plumbing Shift of Glacial Lake Agassiz, a proglacial North American lake larger than the present Great Lakes combined. This shift occurred alongside destabilization of the Laurentide Ice Sheet. Lake Agassiz shifted from draining south down the Mississippi River eastward through the St. Lawrence system and northward down the Mackenzie River. Two, the flooding of the Mackenzie River. Three, destabilization of the Fennoscandian ice sheet in Europe, resulting in a catastrophic flood of the Baltic ice lake. Four, the destabilization of the Greenland ice shelf. As geologist James Kennett notes, it is difficult to explain the triggering of such widespread synchronous changes at the margins of three relatively isolated northern hemisphere ice sheets, Laurentide, Fennoscandian, and Greenland, and the related proglacial lakes by invoking conventional climatic and or paleoceanographic processes. Instead, this broad range of evidence is more readily explained by, cat by catastrophic processes triggered by a cosmic impact with Earth the Younger Dryas Boundary Cosmic Impact Theory. Five, in North and South America, about three-fourths of megafaunal mammals became extinct at or near the Younger Dryas Boundary. And six, the projectile points crafted by the Clovis culture disappear from the, from the archaeological record. The population of the Clovis people also underwent a major decline at the YD Boundary. 
In addition to presenting the mounds of evidence supporting the YD impact hypothesis, both Swetman and Powell took time to address the critics of the idea. They questioned why a small cohort of researchers have been so outspokenly critical of the hypothesis and why the broader scientific establishment latched on to their refutations despite the relatively weak supporting arguments. The abstract to Powell's paper reads, The progress of science has sometimes been unjustly delayed by the premature rejection of a hypothesis for which substantial evidence existed and which later achieved consensus. Continental drift, meteorite impact cratering, and anthropogenic global warming are examples from the first half of the 20th century. This article presents evidence that the Younger Dryas impact hypothesis, YDIH, is a 21st century case. The hypothesis proposes that the airburst or impact of a comet about 12,850 years ago caused the ensuing about 1,200-year-long Younger Dryas YD cool period and contributed to the extinction of the Pleistocene megafauna in the Western Hemisphere and the disappearance of the Clovis Paleo-Indian culture. Soon after publication, a few scientists reported that they were unable to replicate the critical evidence and the scientific community at large came to reject the hypothesis. By today, however, many independent studies have reproduced that evidence at dozens of YD sites. This article examines why scientists so readily accepted the early false claims of irreproducibility and what lessons the premature rejection of the YDIH holds for science. The scientists reporting that they were unable to replicate refers to an article by Nicholas Pinter and Scott Ishman titled Impacts, Mega Tsunami, and Other Extraordinary Claims. This article was published in GSA Today, a magazine for members of the Geological Society of America, which appeared just four months after the Firestone et al. paper in January 2008. Their article starts, Recognition of the importance of impact cratering ranks among the most significant advances in Earth and planetary sciences of the 20th century, but recently there has been a proliferation of reports of impact events and sites that issue simple, less spectacular alternative explanations. Here we focus on 1. Holocene Age ocean impacts and associated mega tsunami, and 2. A catastrophic impact event suggested at about 12.9 thousand years ago. Carl Sagan once said that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. We argue that these impacts do not meet that standard. Powell goes on to sum up and dissect Pinter and Ishman's article stating they presented no new evidence, appealed to irrelevant arguments, the mega tsunami and extraordinary evidence, and suggested processes to explain the abundance peaks that would have taken far longer than the decade or less that Hayes et al. said was possible. A reasonable conclusion would have been to call for scientists to reserve judgment on the YDIH and to seek additional evidence. Instead of doing as Powell suggested, Pinter and Ishman had instead dismissively concluded their paper as follows. Both the 12.9 thousand years ago impact and the Holocene mega tsunami appear to be spectacular explanations on long fishing expeditions for shreds of support. Both stories have played out primarily in the popular press, highlighting how successful impact events can be in attracting attention. The desire for such attention is understandable in an environment when science and scientific funds are increasingly competitive. The National Science Foundation now emphasizes transformative research, and few events are as transformative as an impact. In an era where evolution, geologic deep time, and global warming are under assault, this type of science by press release and spectacular stories to explain unspectacular evidence consume the finite commodity of scientific credibility. Consume the finite commodity of scientific credibility. Translation, 
If you have a theory that goes against the grain, you should shut up because proposing it somehow hurts the credibility of science as a whole. Of all the hyperbole in this closing paragraph, the statement grinds my gears the most. Scientific exploration and the capabilities of the human imagination are infinite, and anyone who says otherwise is no true scientist. In October 2009, a subsequent critical article by Suravel et al. was published in PNAS. Suravel et al. reported that they were unable to reproduce magnetic minerals and microspherules from seven sites of similar age, including two examined by Firestone et al. Instead of recognizing that absence of evidence does not indicate evidence of absence, the authors concluded their report by writing, Reproducibility is fundamental to the scientific method in hypothesis testing. Results that are not reproducible cannot be considered reliable or supportive of a hypothesis. In short, we find no support for the extraterrestrial impact hypothesis as proposed by Firestone et al. Power responded to the Sorovel et al. paper by highlighting the flawed conclusion and ensuing damage this paper did to, to those supporting the impact hypothesis. It should have been obvious that Sorovel et al. had not established that the YDIH microspheral evidence is irreproducible, only that they were unable to reproduce the evidence, for whatever reason. The possibility, if not the near certainty, that it was Suravel et al. who had erred should have caused scientists to reserve judgment about the YDIH. Instead, as shown in Table 2, right up to present day, many scientists have embraced the results of Suravel et al. to cast doubt on the hypothesis. On Substack, I've included Powell's Table 2. This table lists 17 scientific publications between 2010 and 2021 that have cited the 2009 Surovel et al. paper as justification for dismissing the YDIH. For example, a 2011 paper by Holiday et al. extended these flawed conclusions by stating, All attempts to test and replicate this claim or to confirm aspects of this hypothesis have not been successful, raising serious concerns about the veracity of the claim. Now, I understand the merits of peer review and that everyone should exercise healthy skepticism. I also agree with Carl Sagan's argument that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Yet I also question, at what point do we see a trade-off? Does forcing our thinking into the rigid models of our predecessors limit the unbounded nature of our imagination? Could fearing the ridicule of our peers after proposing something novel cause us to self-censor the next great idea? The YD impact hypothesis, like the Alvarez theory on dinosaur extinction 40 years before it, has taught us that we barely know anything about the nuanced, mysterious history of our planet Earth. But isn't that also the fun of it? Science is meant to be an exploration, an expression of the human pleasure in figuring things out. When scientism instead becomes a tool of orthodoxy, groupthink, and condescension against free thought, it has devolved into a different phenomenon altogether. But putting those philosophical questions to the side, researchers like Swetman, Powell, Firestone, and others have done an excellent job compiling the evidence in support of the Younger Dryas impact hypothesis, helping us to dust off the lingering remnants of gradualism and embracing catastrophism once and for all. As Dr. Sweatman highlights, probably with the YD impact event essentially confirmed, the YD impact hypothesis should now be called a theory. Powell agreed, noting that a scientific theory is a well-substantiated explanation of some aspect of the natural world based on a body of facts that have been repeatedly confirmed through observation and experiment. 
It refers to a comprehensive explanation of some aspect of nature that is supported by a vast body of evidence. One of the most useful properties of scientific theories is that they can be used to make predictions about natural events or phenomena that have not yet been observed. Those who have read this article and Sweatman's have the information to decide whether the YDIH meets this definition. In this author's opinion, there is a strong case that it does. Moreover, it should not be forgotten that no other single theory can explain the YD and its associated effects. The Younger Dryas Impact Theory, folks. That has a nice ring to it. What do you think? <laughs>